You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 12th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Hello, this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, Russia claims victory in Ukraine's salt mining town of Solidar in the east, whilst Kyiv is concerned about a possible threat from Belarus. But is Russia losing Chinese support? We'll examine Beijing's changing foreign policy as it aims to heal the rift with Europe. Then we'll get details of the latest blast to rock Kabul in Afghanistan and... Rebuilding Pakistan in a resilient way will run in excess of 16 billion US dollars and far more will be needed in the longer term. Countries have heeded the request of Antonio Guterres of the UN and donated billions to flood relief in Pakistan. But can money alone be enough? We'll have a roundup of environmental news, a flick through the papers, before checking in on a major art happening in Singapore. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. The United States is deploying an upgraded marine regiment to Japan in the face of Chinese military activity. A computer issue caused by a corrupted file led to the breakdown of an air safety system that grounded flights across the US yesterday. And Uganda is Ebola-free, less than four months after cases were first reported. Do stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, mixed reports are emerging from the Donetsk region in eastern Ukraine. The head of the Russian mercenary group Wagner says the strategic salt mining town of Solidar has been captured by Russian forces, but there's been no confirmation from Kyiv. We do know there have been many casualties. While Alex Kokcharov is a risk analyst on Russia, Ukraine and Belarus at S&P Global Market and joins me now. Alex, thanks for coming on the show. Can you shed any light on exactly what's happening in and around Solidar? Uh, yes, good morning. Uh, so Russians have claimed that uh, they managed to take uh, Solidar, which is uh, a small uh, salt mining uh, town. Uh, its pre-war population uh, was only 10,000 people. Um, we need to remember that the battle for Solidar began back in July. So it's been about six months since Russians were trying to capture the town, uh, which is basically a suburb of a larger local city, Bakhmut, uh, with a population of pre-war population of about 70,000 people. Um, if Solidar is indeed taken, it will co- clearly complicate the continued defense of Bakhmut for the Ukrainians. But um, as of yesterday, the general staff of the armed forces of Ukraine Uh, as of 18 o'clock local time, said that the uh, battle for Solidar was ongoing uh, and that uh, Russians were not in control of the city. So So we we are seeing these conflicting reports. uh, The mercenary Wagner Group says it's responsible for this, but the official Russian Defence Force spokesperson merely says they're involved. Is there some sort of power struggle between the two? It appears that there is. Uh, We've seen some criticisms of uh, the Wagner mercenary group, which is actually legal. Um, 
to operate under the Russian law because Russian law does not allow for formation of um, private military companies and the armed forces. So we've seen this, you know, criticisms uh, of the uh, uh, conduct um, on the battlefield between those two forces. And we know that in the Russian Ministry of Defense, there are a lot of people who are unhappy that Wagner Mercenary Group is allowed to take part in this uh, uh, military campaign. We've also seen that Russia's top commander in Ukraine has been replaced just three months into the job. Uh, was he bypassing the Minister of Defence? Did he become too powerful, as some reports suggest? I think the main reason for his replacement uh, and for, for the demotion of General Sorovikin uh, and uh, uh, the appointment of uh, General Gerasimov uh, to the position of the chief commander of the Russian forces to Ukraine is linked to the uh, Kremlin's and Putin's dissatisfaction with the way uh, this military operation is um, uh, happening. Uh, Russia was hoping for a quick war. Now we're quickly approaching first anniversary and fighting in uh, the, the Donetsk region has been particularly attritional for the Russian forces uh, in the uh, recent month uh, with very little to show for. Uh, Russians have made very small advances um, while uh, uh, experiencing very significant casualties in both military personnel and equipment and the Kremlin is not happy. They want a more successful uh, battlefield tactic. And that's why they are reshuffling these generals. And do you think that this supposed victory in Solidar will make a difference to Russia? Uh, I'm, I'm skeptical. It will clearly complicate uh, the ongoing defense of Bakhmut, which has been a focus of Russian offensive operations since July last year. But it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, following capture of Solidar, uh, Russians would necessarily be able to capture Bakhmut. Um, so uh, it's again, it's Solidar is a small town. It doesn't have much of a strategic importance. Um, and the fighting in Donetsk region will continue. Ukrainians have uh, defensive positions uh, in other places in the region, and they will continue defending other strongholds, um, including Avdivka, Marienka, Slovyans, Kramatorsk, and others. Mm. Uh, meanwhile, President Vladimir Zelensky attended a coordination meeting in Lviv on the current security situation in the northwest of the country and the operational situation on the border with Belarus. What are the concerns around that? Ukrainians... Uh, are aware of potential risk uh, coming from the northern border, from Belarus. Uh, there is some Russian military presence on Belarusian territory. Um, as of early January, there were about 9,000 Russian troops uh, present there, allegedly for training. Um, but we've seen reports of more Russian troops arriving in the past two weeks. Uh, so Ukrainians are monitoring the situation uh, and assessing it because they are aware that Russia might attempt another uh, operation from Belarusian territory, either at Kyiv, the national capital, as we have seen in February, or uh, along the Poland-Ukraine border in order to cut the major roads and railways um, to prevent further supply of Western 
um, military assistance to Ukraine. So we know that the Ukrainians are aware of the threats, but based on all the information available right now, uh, Ukrainians are saying that there is no presence of um, uh, offensive uh, uh, offensive combat forces uh, present uh, in Belarus right now. But they are clearly concerned and they're monitoring. And they want more um, weapons to come to Ukraine from the West. And the announcement by the Polish president, uh, Andrzej Duda, yesterday in Lviv, that Poland would supply um, Germany-manufactured uh, Leopard uh, main battle tanks to Ukraine is a very significant announcement. Mm. If Russia were to attack from Belarus, what would the likely timeline be? We've heard suggestions that February might be a, a, a possibility. Uh, the Russians would need to first deploy more troops to Belarus to establish uh, a force of at least 30 or 50,000 um on Belarusian territory before they can uh, they can realistically attack um, Ukraine from the north again. Um, it is my understanding that the numbers are probably around fifteen thousand right now, so we're still some some way from it. Um, it's important to for Ukraine and for NATO to continue monitoring Russian troop movements uh, uh, on Belarusian territory, and if uh, they continue to increase, uh, that would indicate that Russia is preparing for uh, another offensive operation. But again, it could it could be a deception uh, operation by Russia uh, aimed at forcing Ukraine to uh, tie significant forces to the northern border. It's a very lengthy border, more than 1,000 kilometers, um, the border with Belarus. While the main focus of Russian military operations is actually in Donetsk region near Bakhmut. Mm. Uh, Alex, do you think that Minsk, uh, that Lukashenko, is likely to be drawn into invading themselves? It's a million dollar question. A lot of people have been asking uh, since February. Um, based on everything we see, Lukashenko is trying to avoid being directly involved because it would further complicate his position internally and externally. Um, and uh, could potentially undermine him politically uh, within the country. Uh, but it is also clear that he is under a lot of pressure from the Kremlin uh, to join in this war. Uh, so far, he's been successful, but it's not clear whether he will be successful to uh, avoid being drawn into this war um, in 2023. Mm. Uh, now, you mentioned the, the, uh, that Western allies will send heavy-duty tanks to Ukraine. And earlier this week, EU and NATO pledged to enhance their cooperation. Both organisations are grappling with, with growing geopolitical threats, including, obviously, Ukraine. Do you think this united front strengthens Ukraine's fight back? Well, it definitely is extremely important for Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is reliant on continued supply of weapons and ammunition uh, by Western partners, uh, and uh, it increases its resolve uh, in recapturing uh, Russian-occupied territories. We've seen that Ukrainians have successfully conducted counter-offensives, first in Kharkiv region and in the north of Donetsk region, in um, September and then in Kherson region in November. So 
they have demonstrated that with uh, continued military support, they can recapture uh, those previously uh, Russian-occupied lands. Uh, so continued military support by the West uh, is extremely important for Ukraine as it allows them uh, to uh, recapture, uh, liberate uh, Russian-occupied territory and improve the position of Ukrainian armed forces on the battlefield. Alex, thanks very much indeed. That's Alex Kokcherov there. It's 15.13 in Beijing, 7.13 here in London. As Russia puts pressure on Belarus to join its war in Ukraine, is China distancing itself from the Kremlin to appease the West? As the country emerges from lockdown, is this part of a plan to decrease Beijing's isolation? Well, I'm joined by Isabel Hilton, visiting professor at King's College London and the founder and advisor to China Dialogue. Isabel, many thanks for joining us. In the midst of COVID chaos, is China trying to reset foreign policy? Well, I think China is certainly trying to improve relations with Europe and undo some of the damage that uh, the more aggressive aspects of Chinese foreign policy have done in the last few years. They have, for instance, demoted or or moved, rather, uh, Zhao Yijian, who is the very aggressive wolf warrior diplomat who's been running the foreign affairs press operation for several years now, and who who, uh, had a sort of permanent sneer as far as the West was concerned on his face. So there were certainly signs of image softening. I don't think there's a fundamental shift in policy, however. Mm. I do think that China is is very keen to uh, to separate the uh, European Union from the United States. That's an alliance that they very much want to weaken. So they're focusing on Europe uh, in order to maintain hostility to the U.S. Just 20 days before Russia attacked Ukraine, the countries put out a joint statement saying there were no limits to Sino-Russian cooperation, no forbidden zones. But it does seem that China wasn't informed of Russia's plans to invade. How will that have affected their relationship? I think that there is a lot of unhappiness with the invasion of Ukraine. It's, it's as far as China is concerned, not it wasn't a helpful move. And, and China has nevertheless backed Russia pretty much to the hilt. It has um, it has supported Russia's propaganda line and continues to do so that the uh, that Russia had no choice because of NATO's eastward expansion. It has continued to develop trade relations and indeed military relations with Russia throughout. So it's uh, I, I think that there's certainly a rotation in, in Chinese circles that uh, the war was not prosecuted very effectively, that it's dragged on, that it's causing a global recession, and that it is, uh, it's certainly not helping China's uh, reputation in Europe. On the other hand, if you look at the kind of the hard facts of the relationship between them, you know, trade uh, rose 32% between January and November last year. And it's projected to go um, to almost double through 2023, largely in extra oil shipments in a certain amount of of gas. And so, you know, China is to all intents and purposes supporting Russia, despite it. And, you know, military uh, cooperation, military operations against uh, 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 exercises in the East China Sea, uh, uh, those continue. 
Mm. I mean, it seems that that Beijing might be attempting to strike an impossible balance. They're they're wanting to pursue the goals of a strategic partnership with Russia. That they are committed to uh, uh, territorial integrity, non-interference. They also want to minimize collateral damage from EU and U.S. sanctions. Can they ever achieve those three aims? <laughs> China sees this particular juncture as a historic opportunity, and I think both China and Russia. Regard liberal democracy as in permanent decline. So China, Xi Jinping talks regularly about the hundred-year opportunity this presents to China, to change the, the the global rules, to change the way the world works, to change the power balance.、Um, but you know, at the same time, Europe is 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 China's big trade partner. So China doesn't want to. Upset too many apple parts at once. It doesn't want to have too many fronts、uh, of hostility at once. And you know, the European policy has had some serious setbacks. But if you look again at the diplomatic record recently, we've had visits from the German Chancellor. We've had a visit from、uh, Michel from the European Union. Macron is is slated to go. And certainly, as far as Germany is concerned, the biggest driver of, of、uh, European policy, the economic relationship with China is absolutely critical. Volkswagen sells more cars in China than it does in the rest of the world. So China may well calculate and has calculated in the past that in the in the end, the pocketbook really matters in Europe,、mm. and and the strategic. It's constantly arguing to Europe that. Europe should assert strategic autonomy from the United States. It's saying to European leaders, "Don't be the U.S. lapdog." You know, we can have a relationship whilst maintaining the the、um, strategic hostility to the United States, which both China and Russia see as the main enemy. I wonder if China is also attempting to position itself as a peacemaker. I mean, is Europe hoping that it could use its influence to stop Russia using nuclear weapons, for instance? Well, China is claiming that you know China is is claiming to be a peacemaker, but actually the the in practice it hasn't done very much. It may well、uh, be restraining Russia in in private, and we saw some hints of that at a summit in Central Asia towards the end of the year, where Russia volunteered, Putin suddenly volunteered in public that he was aware of China's concerns. Um, so yes, China certainly doesn't want a nuclear war. Whether Putin would actually resort to nuclear weapons, of course, is a, is, is another matter. And in terms of of China actively inserting itself in the conflict and you know getting people round the table, I I see very little sign of that as yet. Although it may well be holding out hope to Europe、uh, that that、uh, might be a move you know that it's willing to make. And one thing that、uh, Beijing is insisting that its European counterparts agree to、uh, is to repeat a no decoupling mantra from China. What what does that mean, Ethan? Well, I think this is a reflection of the rather serious hit that China's advanced technology is taking because of American moves.、Uh, you know,、um, the sanctions、uh, introduced by President Trump have, have in fact been made more effective under President Biden. And this is、uh, an attempt by by the United States to cut off supplies of advanced chips to China. Now, without those, you know, a lot of、um, these these have civil and military、uh, uses. So, you know, the U.S. can claim a national security aspect,、um, but it's certainly hurting、uh, many of China's major 
companies, including, of course, Huawei, which has somehow become the battleground between, between China and the United States. Now, what China does not want is to see Europe uh, bowing to U.S. pressure over similar sanctions. I mean, Europe is pretty important to China. It's the biggest trade partner. It's very important as the, the kind of terminus of the Belt and Road, you know, the great, the great project to link up uh, uh, Europe and Central Asia and East Asia through infrastructure. And, and if that really becomes kind of hostile territory for China, both commercially and politically, then China's grand, grand project is, is in some trouble. Isabel, thank you very much. That's Isabel Hilton there. Now, still to come on the programme. Rebuilding Pakistan in a resilient way will run in excess of 16 billion US dollars and far more will be needed in the longer term. Billions of dollars have poured into Pakistan after the call from the UN's Antonio Guterres. But with climate change ultimately being responsible for the devastating floods, floods there, what more can be done? That's coming up. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. A Taliban official says that at least 20 people have been killed after a suspected suicide bomber detonated himself outside the foreign ministry in Kabul in the second major attack in the Afghan capital this year. Well, for more, I'm joined by Lynn O'Donnell, who's a columnist for Foreign Policy magazine. Uh, Lynn, thanks for, for joining us on Monocle 24. What more do we know about this blast? Well, it seems to have been a pretty big one. Um, the figures are, of course very fudgy. The Taliban don't tell the truth and they're playing it down and saying about five casualties. But in central Kabul, there is a, a hospital, a surgical hospital run by an Italian uh, medical charity called Emergency. And they say that they've taken in more than 40 casualties and other reports are saying at least 11, possibly more dead. Um, the target is also unclear. Possibly the Deputy Foreign Minister, Abbas Danakzai, who is, um, has been very outspoken about the Taliban's bans on girls going to secondary school and women going to university. And there are also unconfirmed reports that there were Chinese uh, diplomats meeting with the Foreign Minister at the time of the blast and the Chinese have already been targeted uh, in Kabul. Uh, so it's it's very unclear, but that area is uh, right in the middle of the diplomatic zone, close to the Turkish embassy and the Iranian embassy, both of which have ambassadors based in Kabul, even though there's no diplomatic recognition uh, globally for the Taliban. And the former president, Hamid Karzai, also lives in a house on the same road, almost next door to the foreign ministry. Now, it's interesting that you point out these uh, two attacks on, on Chinese people. First, the fact that the Chinese delegation might have been in the foreign ministry. Uh, and secondly, that at least five Chinese nationals were wounded last month when gunmen stormed at a hotel popular with, with Chinese business people. Uh, that attack, as indeed this one, was claimed by ISIS or, or ISIS-K. Why would they be targeting China? 
Well, um, ISIS-K is the Afghan uh, franchise, if you like, of ISIS, and they're very much more conservative than the Taliban. And they were very much, as a group, very much against the Taliban doing deals as they did with the Americans, which led to the withdrawal in 2021. And now they see the Taliban uh, doing deals with other countries and China is at the forefront of signing contracts for exploitation of ta- uh, the um, Afghan uh, minerals um, assets. And I think that uh, it is it is fair to say that if indeed it was um, ISIS-K that attacked the Chinese hotel last month, it's, uh, it, it would be part of this... Um, process of protesting against the Taliban's uh, dealing with foreign powers. Um, there is um, a growing presence of, um, of ISIS-K and I think that they are probably presenting the greatest challenge to the Taliban's um, monopoly of power across the country at the moment. So the Taliban claims, though, to have improved security since it took back power in, in 2021. Is that the case? Well, you know, it's 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 hard to say really because the Taliban have also closed down the flow of information out of the country. There are um, armed resistance groups fighting um, some uh, to great effect in parts of the north of the country, especially the Panjshir Valley, uh, which is uh, was a stronghold against the Taliban during their last day in power, 96 to 2001. Um, but we also see a lot of internal uh, friction between different groups inside the Taliban. So it's very, very difficult to get a handle on what's going on. It's very convenient at the moment for the international community to say that the Taliban is fractured uh, when it comes to, for instance, issues like the employment of women in international and local non-government organisations. But I think that this is a spin. I think the Taliban is fairly cohesive uh, when it comes to uh, the treatment of, of women and that uh, probably the greatest threat to the Taliban at the moment is from the um, anti-Taliban resistance, which is pro-Republican, and the uh, the growing might of um, of ISIS in the country. Lynn, thank you very much indeed. That's Lynn O'Donnell there. And here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. The US is deploying an upgraded marine regiment to Okinawa in southern Japan in the face of increased Chinese military activity. The Japanese Prime Minister is due to meet Joe Biden at the White House on Friday as the two countries announce strengthening military ties. A computer issue caused by a corrupted file led to the breakdown of an air safety system that grounded flights across the US yesterday. The glitch forced a 90-minute halt to all departing flights in the country. It caused more than 10,000 delays and 1,300 cancellations. And Uganda has declared an end to its Ebola outbreak, less than four months after cases were first reported. The country has reported no new infections in more than 42 days. That's twice the maximum incubation period of the virus, a World Health Organization benchmark for a country to be declared Ebola-free. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned.
Last summer's floods in Pakistan killed more than 17,000 people and displaced around 8 million. The flooding was caused by record monsoon rains and melting glaciers, and it was so bad that the waters are still receding. Dr Aisha Siddiqua is a research associate at SOAS, the South Asia Institute. Aisha, this was clearly caused by global warming, yet Pakistan is responsible for less than 1% of global greenhouse gas emissions. It's one of the countries uh, most vulnerable to climate catastrophe caused by global warming. We'll get into the the financial pledges in, in a minute, but how can the international community help Pakistan avoid these sorts of disasters from occurring in the first place? Well, the international community, to start with, must take responsibility and, you know, be very careful with uh, with emissions. Um, and I think this is something which needs to be done at a global scale, not at an, an you know, not at in, at a regional or, or or a local level. The other thing is, of course, teaching Pakistan, helping Pakistan to administer the aid whenever it comes and also help it build structures inside. Uh, and then and I'm, I'm, I'm talking about management structures in order to uh, ensure that when there are floods again, because this is not the, this was not, a, you know, a, a freak event, the flood this year, uh, last year. There's going to be more floods because climate is changing. Pakistan is a place where, which has one of the largest, uh, you know, number of glaciers. So it is in the, you know, it 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 it, it remains threatened in the future as well. Mm. So how does, you know, so so there is a lot of hand holding which needs to be done. So it's going to cost an estimated $16.3 billion to recover from this. And of course, that won't bring back the lives lost. But there has been an outpouring of donations from the international community, raising half the amount needed. Uh, this was announced at a, a climate conference uh, in, in, the U, in Geneva with the help of the UN. Who are the biggest donors then to Pakistan? See, if you look at the... These are pledges, by the way. Uh, it is not... I mean, it's the money needs to kind of come to Pakistan. These are pledges. And most of the money has been given by World Bank, by Asian Development Bank, etc. Uh, there is Germany, which has given 88 million. Uh, Britain has given, I think, one of the lowest amounts is from Britain, $9 million. Um China has given hundred million dollars. So if you actually, if you look at figures, uh, countries, individual countries haven't uh, given a lot. There and 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 right now these are pledges. Now interestingly, the money that has been promised, a lot of it is loans. Uh, so you know one needs to look at very carefully. Now that <clears throat> means that. Pakistan, if if it's going to add to, you know, Pakistan's debt crisis, which is another problem with what Pakistan is facing. Um, You know, we're looking at a time when there is recession, you know, economic recession all over the world. And if you look at the figures of pledges, countries have given, but they've not really been 
generous, generous. Right. Uh, talking a, a, about the, the debt crisis, I mean, Pakistan's been struggling for years to stabilise its economy. What is the current status with the IMF? Well, uh, the IMF is supposed to come, I think, in a month's time to renegotiate um, the present government and the present finance minister had, uh, you know, he had announced that, you know, he didn't need IMF and that he'll, he'll um, you know, deal, uh, you know, he, he can handle the economy without the IMF. It's not necessarily proving uh, fruitful, that kind of an attitude. So uh, Pakistan is basically the government is running around all over the world trying to find someone who can who can who can pay um so you know i just told you that you know there is 9 billion dollar uh, dollars in pledges and and most of it uh, is loan whatever is going to come is going to be loans it's trying to go to saudi arabia and apparently saudi arabia is going to give a couple of billion dollars for immediate relief there is talks about 11 billion dollars of total in long term Saudi investment, but nobody is really ready to give Pakistan money as it used to get used, uh, you know, used to get in the past. Uh, and I think part of the problem is that people are wary of this Pakistan's attitude where it begs for money, takes it, and then misuses it. Mm. Uh, there is a corruption issue, huge corruption issue you know, which is which is a problem. Uh, Aisha, thank you very much indeed. That's Dr. Aisha Siddiqua. It's 8.35 in Zurich, that's 7.35 here in London, and we'll continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Andrew Walker, journalist and former economics correspondent for the BBC World Service. Good morning to you, Andrew. Morning, Georgina. Uh, Let's have a look at this Biden document story. I mean, that's been carried in a lot of places, including the New York Times. Mm -hmm. Tell us what's behind it. Well, this is the second time in just a few days that um, some of President Biden's aides have found classified documents at locations associated with Mr. Biden. And these are documents from dating back from when he was vice president in the Obama administration. Uh, The arrangements are that when you leave office, um, a a president, vice president or whatever is supposed to hand over any documents, particularly classified documents, to to the US archives. And of course, part of the political background to this is that um, there's, there's been this really quite bitter dispute between um, former President Trump over documents that he has retained at Mar-a-Lago and um, President Biden has been very critical of Mr. Trump, um, accusing him of being irresponsible in his handling of documents. So it does all look... It's a little, at the very least, it's quite embarrassing for Mr. Biden. Um, There are some important differences, I have to say. One is that it does appear um, that the the scale of the documents that have been been retained um, is much larger in the case of President Trump than it is with with Mr. Biden. Um, It also appears so far to be the case that um, President Biden's aides, his lawyers in particular, um, have handed the documents over voluntarily and as soon as they have found them, whereas, of 
course, in President Trump's case, there there, there, there were actually legal action taken to, to recover the, the documents. Nonetheless, it's at the very least politically very difficult for President Biden. Um, and I have no doubt the, um, well, the Republicans already are drawing attention to what they regard as a discrepancy between his criticisms of the former president and the way in which he himself has handled sensitive documents. Mm. Uh, but, I mean, as you say, there are lots of key differences and, mm. and, and the, the documents that Biden had were never even reported missing. I mean, these are documents no, that, that... So far as we know, no, that, that's right. It does appear to be the case that um, in the course of, um, uh, of, of, of routine work around the office that, that lawyers seem to have uncovered these documents in these places associated with President Biden and volunteered the fact to the US archives and handed the documents over. Um, but there's no question that it is, at the very least, embarrassing for for Mr. Biden. Absolutely. Well, let's look now at the American debt limit. This is a really interesting story. Again, mm. uh, covered in depth in the New York Times yeah, uh, as well as elsewhere. It's a kind of early warning, you might say. Um, the background to this is that if the US government is going to borrow money, it has to have the authority of Congress to do it. And the way in which that has been done has been by Congress simply setting a limit, and a maximum amount, or ceiling as it's known, on the total accumulated debt that the US government can have. Um, and this year, the US government is going to borrow pretty heavily. IMF forecasts are about $1.5 trillion. And in the course of the year, um, it will undoubtedly, it seems, or it certainly if not this year, certainly soon afterwards, will hit the current limit, which is about $31.5 trillion. Now, we have had previously episodes where um, where the, the question of whether Congress is going to extend the limit has led to major standoffs with between Congress and the administration. Um, and there is the possibility that, um, that the US government will run into a situation where it's struggling to pay its bills. And the one I think that borrow, bothers economists most and um, financial markets most is the possibility that it might end up missing some of the repayments or interest payments on old debt. Um, now, Republicans are saying that these fears are overblown, but it does look entirely possible um, that we will have a major standoff on this sometime later this year. Goldman Sachs is quoted in the New York Times article as suggesting it's probably sometime like August, so it's not, not an issue for this week, but it's certainly an early warning of what could be a major political episode later on in the year. And of course, exacerbated by the fact that uh, Congress is so riven that McCarthy has so little support. I mean, he's yeah, actually absolutely. said this week that he and his fellow Republicans would seek to use the debt limit standoff to enact spending cuts mm -hmm. and reduce the national debt. Uh, but I mean, with so many enemies there, mm -hmm. one, one wonders if anything can go through. It'll be very difficult, that's for sure. Um, although bear in mind... Um, I mean, if nothing goes through, then that means the debt limit has not been increased and the US government is, is facing this difficulty. Um, it's certainly been the case that Republicans have in the past tried to use the, um, use the debt limit negotiations to extract um, commitments on spending restraint from... Uh, they did it a number of times under the Obama administration. I have to say, in a situation where the government's finances are such that it is... Um, other things being equal would be borrowing such large amounts of money this year. The idea of actually reducing the accumulated debt, I think, is is is, um, is a bit of a fairy tale at the moment. But 
there's no question we will have some, I think we will have some very difficult negotiations. Mm. Uh, let's go now to the world's most dangerous animal. That is, of course, the, the mosquito. mosquito. Yes. <laughs> uh, I wonder uh, where you were going with that. This yeah. is a, a, yeah. a great, well, right, Republicans possibly, <laughs> right-wing extremists. Uh, the Japan Time yeah. is, is uh, talking about super resistant mosquitoes. No, this is striking. Um, um, a group, it's a re- Um, they've uh, picked up a study that's been done by a group of Japanese scientists looking at specifically the the, um, types of mosquitoes that transmit um, certain viral diseases, notably uh, dengue fever, but also yellow fever. And they have they've looked at um, various parts of Asia and also in Ghana. But I think it seems to be that some of the Asian countries, they've found extraordinarily high levels of resistance to insecticides amongst some of these um, uh, some of these types of mosquito, which is you know obviously a, a very serious concern. Insecticide treatment is an important part of the um, of the armory that we have against um, um, holding back mosquito-borne diseases. Strikingly, in this article, the word malaria does not appear at all, and which is um, which is transmitted by a different group of mosquitoes. But it is potentially an issue there as well. Um, I've, I've seen um, some other other reports not mentioned here that um, in in the first part of the this century so far, um, insecticides may have prevented as much as half a billion cases, um, infections of malaria. So it's it, it's a pretty worrying, worrying development. Absolutely. It's not the only... Um, weapon that we have against these these diseases, diseases, but it certainly is an important one. Yeah, well, let's continue to talk about disease and, of course, the disease that has dominated the world for the last three years. The World Health Organization says it's working with China to manage the risks of COVID-19 surging as people travel for Chinese New Year. But, uh, I mean, we've had very little clarity from, no, from China. Straits Times in Singapore has picked up this story about the, the WHO, which has said it is um, working with China on this. This Before the pandemic, this was the world's biggest annual migration and of course lots of people moving around the country um, in perhaps in very cramped buses or other forms of transport um, many cases going back to families in in rural areas that would otherwise have been uh, much less exposed um, to infections that transmit um, rapidly in in densely crowded urban areas so you know it is a real issue um, and the WHO yes indeed has been saying that it's concerned about the um, the lack of data China of course um, says it's being terribly open but um, it is again a, another uh, another potential um, source of a major surge in infections um, that we've already seen one obviously recently as China finally gave up on its zero COVID policy um, and the new year does present a significant risk of a, another surge um, China's obviously the country most at risk of this but 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 um, um, but given China's global economic role there's every possibility of, of that leading to further spillover elsewhere. Mm. Now, as we know, of course, COVID is alleged to have come out of a wet market in Wuhan in China where live animals yes. are sold. But one way perhaps for this not occurring again is not to use live animals, not to use animals at all. And another story out of China is about lab-grown meat. Yes, the South China Morning Post has got a kind of review of where we've got to on um, the development of lab-grown meat. Um, the position at the moment is that the only um, place where it's authorised for sale is Singapore. 
Um, and it's a very small scale thing at the moment. Maybe it'll get to be bigger. Um, there are the, the the article does note some of the the, the potential benefits of it. Um, if it it um, if it were to replace to you know, any significant extent animal. Um, actual the use of actual animals then of course we're looking at the possibility of um, gains in terms of climate issues um, if you if you don't have to give vast areas of previous forest over to uh, to rearing cattle um, if you don't have to worry so much about the methane emissions from cattle and sheep and goats there might be some benefits there um, it's not clear that it doesn't go into detail this article on on the animal welfare issues, um, which obviously is is one potential um, attraction of it. I mean, there's no question if it were to be scaled up to a large enough extent, there would be less by way of animals having to be killed to provide the meat. But some of the technologies that are currently used do involve getting uh, byproducts from animal slaughter to provide the growth medium for these um, for, for this this kind of artificial meat to be produced. So it's very very early stages. We're nowhere near, um, as the article notes, um, very the kind of very large scale production that would be needed to make any significant impact on these issues. But there is stuff going on, um, and I I think the South China Morning Post give us a perfectly good case for thinking it's well and development worth well well worth keeping an eye on in the years ahead. Absolutely, Andrew. Thank you. That was Andrew Walker, and this is the Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Well, let's have more environmental news now with Chloe Farrand, who's a senior reporter and investigations lead for Climate Home News. Chloe, thanks for coming on the programme. It's been another record-breaking year uh, in terms of climate highs and lows. Uh, Tell us more. Hi, Georgina. Yes, that's right. 2022 has been another year of extreme uh, weather. And European scientists at the Copernicus Climate Change Service confirmed this week that the past eight years were the warmest on record and 2022 was the fifth warmest year on record globally. Um, that uh, Copernicus, which is a meteorological organization, found that the world is about 1.2 degrees warmer than at the start of the Industrial Revolution, uh, when Newman started emitting greenhouse gases from fossil fuels. And what's interesting uh, in, in this uh, study is that Europe is warming faster than any other continent in the world. Temperatures increased by more than twice the global average over the past three decades. And that's partly because of the proximity to the Arctic uh, region, which is itself warming nearly four times faster than the global average. 
So the summer in uh, in Europe has been the warmest um, in 2022, beating the 2021 record. So we're just seeing record after record being broken. UK, Ireland, France, Italy, Spain and Switzerland um, reported their hottest year uh, to date with exceptionally dry conditions over the spring and summer wildfires and you might remember these pictures uh, of the uh, dried up riverbed of uh, of the Loire River in France and i think this is a stark reminder that rich countries which have which have once thought maybe that climate adaptation was a developing country issue are also already experiencing the devastating impacts of climate change and what's worth noting is that these records are taking place despite the presence of a weather pattern known as la nina which has a cooling effect, and particularly on the oceans. And yet another study found um, that the oceans were the hottest ever recorded last year in 2022. Ocean temperatures is far less affected by uh, natural climate viability uh, than the temperature of the air. And so this is a clear indicator of global heating. And of course, this is costing the world's economies. Yes, absolutely. Um, And there's a a good example of that in the US, um, where a report by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, uh, found that extreme weather fueled by climate change cost the US $165 billion in 2022. Uh, NOAA said that the US had experienced 18 separate disasters uh, last year with damages exceeded $1 billion. Um, and uh, Hurricane Ian, the Category 4 storm, which flattened parts of, uh, of Florida and killed 150 people uh, last year, cost nearly $113 billion alone. And Noah is saying that these extreme events are occurring at a higher frequency and with increased cost to the economy and to lives. Um, and the average, and, and and you know, and these these uh, billion-dollar disasters are surging. There's 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 more of them, and in part that's because people are moving in, um, or living in, or moving into areas which are increasingly exposed to extreme weather, like Florida, which is prone um, to hurricane and. And, you know, in other parts of the country, we've seen in California, uh, 17 people have died as a result of flooding caused by a series of storms there, which are destroying homes and and infrastructure such as roads. Thousands of people have been told to evacuate um, and and more than 20 million people are under flood alert across the state, uh, which is uh, due to see more severe storms and torrential downpours um, in in, in Northern California in the coming days. So um, the picture is is really stark. You know, the economic cost is going to continue to grow. And yet the U.S. at the same time this week, um, you know, we've had data showing that the U.S.'s emissions, which are contributing to the problem, have continued to grow in 2022 for the second consecutive year. And that's not boding well um, for uh, Biden's goal of halving uh, the U.S.'s emissions uh, by 2030. Yeah. Uh, And finally, Chloe, a very quick look at Dr. Rose Abramoff. Yes, there's a really interesting uh, essay in the New York Times uh, this week where um, Dr. Rose Abramoff, which is who's an earth scientist who studies the effects of climate change on ecosystem, explains uh, how she lost her job as a result of her climate activism. Um, and basically, briefly, what happened is that um, Dr. Abramoff took part in a meeting of the American Geophysical Union in December, and she unfurled a banner that read out of the lab and into the street. And she called on uh, scientists to speak out and inform the public about the need for climate action. Uh, 
Shortly after the stint at the American Geophysical Union expelled her from the conference and uh, launched a misconduct inquiry. Um, and her employer, uh, the Oak Ridge National La uh, Laboratory in Tennessee, fired her at the start of the new year, accusing her of misusing government resources and engaging in a personal activity on a work trip while hurting the institution's reputation. Now, this has caused quite the stir because Dr. Abramov is at the forefront of uh, climate research and she understands, uh, you know, the impact of climate change, uh, the impacts climate change is having on the uh, ecosystems. And she said, you know, she wrote that she felt completely powerless and that she needed to go further than her academic uh, work. And she urged other scientists to do the same and speak out. And there's been... Um, Lots and lots of comments on Twitter from other climate scientists coming out in her defense, uh, you know, and, 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 and really urging others, other scientists who, who, who are the forefront of this to come out and say their truth. Chloe, thank you very much indeed. That's Chloe Farran there. And this is The Globalist on Monocle 24. on the programme we head to Singapore where the inaugural edition of Art SG Southeast Asia's largest ever art fair opens today well Naomi Tzu Elegant is Monocle's, Monocle's writer in Singapore she joins us from there now uh, Naomi good morning to you tell us how was the first day and what we, can we expect from the rest of the fair Hi Georgina the first day was really lovely so it's a beautiful day in Singapore and as you know Art SG is pretty much the biggest art event opening in about 10 years in this region it's been delayed for a long time, so it was a super crowded exhibition center. There's, I think, a thousand artists from 30 countries, 150 galleries here, um, very, very crowded space, and a lot of people from China, which, as you know, just opened up two days ago. So there's very much a mood of jubilance and like things are really coming back to the region. And where is the fair actually taking place? It's taking place in Marina Bay Sands, which is that um, very iconic Singaporean building with a huge uh, pool on top. Uh, in a really big space, but there's also events, platforms, uh, film screenings happening in the big museums all over the country. And what about exciting new gallery launches? Are there many of those? There are, yeah. One in particular, which I'm actually attending the opening reception after this, is Wow Gallery from Singapore. Uh, sorry, from Hong Kong, which is opening its first um, outpost in Singapore. Um, and there's a lot of blue chip galleries here too. There was a little uh, Ruinar Champagne booth, which I may go and investigate tomorrow. <laughs> Um, and yeah, just lots and lots of Southeast Asian artists and, and really cool stuff. And who are some of the artists whose work you're most excited to see? So I really enjoyed um, Ang Ko from Myanmar, who's a painter, and uh, Justin Lim, a Malaysian painter. Um, and their galleries like Richard Ko, which has, uh, I think, uh, Kuala Lumpur, Bangkok and Singapore outposts, uh, as well as Spurs Gallery Beijing, showing a lot of really great Chinese artists, both uh, legacy ones and really up and coming ones. Um, which I think Singapore is a pretty unique place where you can see, you know, this kind of global outreach, but at the same time, a lot of emerging artists who, for them, this is like kind of the, the biggest platform they've ever been on. Mm. Uh, Naomi, as we know, of course, uh, COVID has, has ravaged the region. China's just opened. Is there much, uh, are there many masks around? How is the how has the pandemic been dealt with in these, what I imagine to be fairly crowded situations? So for Singapore, the mask regulation ended a few months ago. People are still a little bit cautious, so you kind of see it 50-50, I would say. But 
you know, it's pretty crowded. People really want to get back out there. There's a lot of cocktail parties and things like that. Um, as I said, people are basically pretty relieved and happy to be in the same room again, chatting face to face. The fair's billed as Southeast Asia's largest art fair. Is the rest of the region represented this weekend? Very much so, yeah. Um, so, you know, there's from Thailand to Indonesia to Philippines, and then obviously you have your European and um, American artists too. But I think what's really nice is that there's a lot of small artists who previously would have just been shown in their own countries, where now there's, uh, since people are traveling again, there's really, really a global audience for their work. And I wonder what this means for the art industry in Singapore. I think it, it means a lot of good things. I think Singapore for a long time has been a bit of a second fiddle to Hong Kong, which is just an iconic place for art and for auctions. And then uh, Seoul in recent years has really, really grown as an art hub as well. But I think Singapore is really well placed in Southeast Asia for these artists that might be overlooked from, you know, Myanmar to Malaysia, as I mentioned, and who now are really getting an international uh, platform. Mm. And just finally, before we go, we know how important food is in Singapore. Uh, I understand the art fair uh, is uh, very much going into detail on where people should eat. It is, yeah. It's um, pretty much the number one priority for Singaporeans. So RSG released a very detailed guide, you know, apart from museums, exactly where to eat, which hawker stalls to go to, which cocktail bars to go to, which I really, really appreciate. (laughs) It sounds amazing. So finally, give us your agenda. You're off to the champagne booth. I am. Yeah, I might have to look into that, as I said. Uh, This evening, I'll be going to the Wild Gallery's opening reception, which I'm very excited about. The founder, Kevin Poon, is coming in from Hong Kong. Um, And then I'll probably be going to the fair again for the next couple of days because it's so big that I didn't even have time to see everything today. Fantastic. Uh, Naomi, thank you very much indeed. That's Monocle's Naomi Zoo Elegant. And the fair does run until Sunday. So if you find yourself in Singapore, it sounds like it's the place to be. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Laura Kramer and Christy O'Grady, our researchers, Lillian Fawcett and Andre Nikolai Parmenchuan. Our studio manager today was Steph Chungu. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday in London and uh, uh, I'll return on The Globalist at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.